0: Well, one of the great privileges that uh, being a pastor um, gives me is that I get to officiate weddings. And as a former RUF campus minister, it's a peculiar joy when I have been able to officiate the weddings of former students. Um, just this last Friday, uh, it was a great joy for me to officiate the wedding of Allison Price and Aaron Wyderka, now Allison Wyderka as well. Uh, I remember meeting them when they were freshmen. And it's just amazing to me to see how their love has grown, uh, but also how their love for Christ has grown over those years. And it's just a tremendous uh, joy. And, of course, the wedding was a joyous event, as every wedding is. Um, the, the bride and the groom and, really, their parents, uh, they, they splurged lavishly uh, uh, to celebrate that occasion. More money than normal is spent on invitations and on the dress, of course, and on the decorations and the food and the music, and this happens in every culture, uh, and, and, and it's perfectly justified. The occasion merits that, but I would say, submit to you that especially as Christians, we ought to be uh, especially joyous around weddings, because uh, as Christians, we are, have the great privilege of understanding the true meaning of the wedding, and that's that it points us to that magnificent royal wedding at the end of time. Psalm 45 is a beautiful love song commemorating a royal wedding. It is uh, the wedding of a king in the line of David. Some scholars would suggest that it commemorates the wedding of Solomon to Pharaoh's daughter, but I think as we look at the text, it becomes very clear, actually, that this is about a much greater wedding involving a much greater king. It points to the wedding of weddings, the royal wedding at the end of time. See, Psalm 45 has much to teach us about that bridegroom and about his bride. So let me read to you now Psalm 45. Please turn there. Psalm 45. Please uh, give your attention to the reading of God's word. To the choir master, according to lilies, a mascal of the sons of Korah, a love song. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cost of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness, and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, string instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the riches of, your, of the people. All glorious is the, prince, the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king, with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, the title of this psalm, of Psalm 45, explicitly calls it a love song. And it certainly is that. We just had the great joy of singing it together as B.J. so uh, excellently arranged it to the words of the Trinity Psalter. But it's also here called not just a love song, but a mascal. And a mascal describes a contemplative poem. That is to say, it is a song that contains wisdom for us to glean from. In other words, Psalm 45 is a God-inspired love song that is meant to teach us truth. And it's meant to stir and shape the affections of our hearts. It is a song that moves our hearts to worship as it illustrates the depth of the bridegroom's love for his bride. Look at what the poet writes in verse 1. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. Before the psalmist points us to the bridegroom, he prepares our hearts for worship. First, notice that the psalm is addressed to the king. The right worship of God is theocentric. In other words, it has God as, as its center, as its focus, and as its end. Its purpose is not primarily to make us feel good, or to make us feel happy, or to make us feel more virtuous, although those might be right effects of worship. Now, in worship we gather to glorify God, to sing His praises, to magnify His name, to commune with Him through prayer and through the sacraments, and to joyously submit to His sovereign rule as His Spirit uses His word to conform us to the image of His Son. Second, notice that the psalmist says that His tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. The king's scribe listens to the king's words. He doesn't write down his own words. He's a scribe. Right worship is not exercise, is not an exercise in personal creativity. The right worship of God is guided by the word of God. This is why the psalmist writes that his heart overflows with a pleasing theme. Literally, in the Hebrew, is that his heart stirs with a good word. How wrong we are to assume that we must rely on our own brilliance or our own wisdom or our own giftedness or our own eloquence, our own sensibilities or our own creativity even in the worship of God. No, the sweetest melody to God's ear comes from a heart that is stirred by the good word, a heart that resonates with the notes that Scripture plays. Furthermore, notice that the scribe is a ready scribe. The right worship of God requires preparation, and devotion, and intentionality. It is not half assed nor careless, nor arbitrary. This means that we ought to prioritize a good night's rest, for example, before worshiping on the Lord's day. This means that we should rest from our labor so as not to be distracted. This means that we should earnestly examine our own hearts that we might repent of sin, that we might ask for forgiveness, that we might seek reconciliation and peace both with God and with our fellow men. In other words, we must prepare our bodies and our minds and our hearts and our spirits that we might be ready to behold the bridegroom and worship the king. How good and fitting it is that this love song begins by preparing us to meet the bridegroom who is the proper object uh, object and devotion of our love. Now, in a wedding, the bride is the center of attention. She's the last one to enter the church, and the eyes of all the guests are fixed on her as she walks down the aisle in her resplendent white dress. But in this wedding... It is the royal bridegroom who first captures the poet's attention. And in verses 2 to 9, the psalmist extols his virtues. Look at verse 2. It reads, You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. In Hebrew, it reads, Handsome, handsome are you among the sons of men. The adjective describing the bridegroom is doubled. It's a poetic way of enhancing the degree of praise. It's as if the poet can find no words to adequately describe the mesmerizing beauty of the bridegroom. The the hymn, Fairest Lord Jesus, comes to mind in one stanza which proclaims, Fair are the meadows, fairer still the woodlands robed in the blooming garb of spring. Jesus is fairer. Jesus is pure who makes the woeful heart to sing. Like the poet, our woeful hearts sing when we consider the matchless beauty of our Savior. And yet, with respect to Jesus, the kind of beauty that stirs our hearts cannot primarily be physical since we have never seen Him. In fact, concerning the Messiah, the prophet Isaiah writes that He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him and no beauty that we should desire him. The humility of God is utterly incomprehensible to us at this point. That the the very one who is capable of making physiques of sublime beauty will take on flesh that in and of itself is apparently unremarkable, really it's, it's unthinkable to us. And yet that's how he comes. Nevertheless, the psalmist runs out of adjectives to to sing his praises. You are the most handsome of the sons of men, he writes. Clearly, it is the incomparable excellencies of Christ, and in particular when it has to do with his character that are in view here. His holiness, his righteousness, his justice, his strength, his compassion. They are all without equal and worthy of extolling. Again, in verse 2, the psalmist writes, Grace is poured upon your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever. What a striking contrast exists between the vitriolic rhetoric that inundates social media and the airwaves and the public square over against the gracious words of our bridegroom. After Jesus spoke in the synagogue in Nazareth, Luke writes that those in his hearing marveled at the gracious words That were coming from his mouth. When Jesus goes to the Feast of Booths in Jerusalem, officers are sent to arrest him, but they can't bring themselves to do it. So when the chief priests and Pharisees demand an explanation for their failure, the officers say, no one ever spoke like this man. Yes, this word, his word, is a word that is mocked, it is a word that is scorned, it is a word that is despised. Nevertheless, it has the power to turn hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, doesn't it? That's why most of us are here. Because grace is poured on the lips of the bridegroom and we need to taste of that grace again and again and again. Look at verses 3 and 4. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty ride out victoriously for the cost of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. As is appropriate in a royal wedding, the royal bridegroom is dressed in military garb. He is the protector and the champion of his people. The image is reminiscent of Revelation 19, where Jesus, with sword firmly girded on his thigh, rides on a white horse to defend his bride. Is it not good to know that we have such a champion? One who has conquered sin, one who has conquered death, one who will one day subdue all of his and all of our enemies. It is this conquering bridegroom who secures our hopes and who allows us to not give up when we struggle against sin. To not give up when trials um, come at us from all sorts of angles. And it is good that the psalmist focuses on the sword. For our bridegroom wields the sword of the Spirit, the sharp two-edged blade of Scripture. Yes, the word is soaked in grace. But as it pierces our hearts, it convicts us of sin and leads us to repentance, even as the sword covers the wound with its healing balm of grace, giving new life to new hearts. Oh, that we too would effectively wield that two-edged sword that pierces to the division of soul and of spirit, of joint and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Look at verse 5. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. In Psalm 127, verse 4, we find echoes of this verse where we read, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Our children are the arrows of the warrior king, the arrows of the bridegroom who is the protector and the champion of his bride. And it is sharp arrows that penetrate the hearts of the king's enemies, even winning them over to the realm. This is why we could not be more thankful for our children's ministry staff and our youth ministry staff, together with so many volunteers who devote themselves to discipling our covenant children, to equipping them with Scripture, to praying for their continued growth and maturity in godliness. And of course, we as parents must also devote ourselves to disciple the children in our homes. To rear them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord that they might indeed be sharp arrows in the mighty hands of Jesus. Our children are the heritage of our faith and they must carry within their hearts the treasure of the gospel. They must be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. Their mission is their great honor and it is our privilege as parents and his grandparents, and as adult members of this church to be entrusted by our king to sharpen them. Verses 6 and 7 says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. If there was ever any doubt that this love song is about Jesus. Verses six and seven ought to put that doubt to rest. The author of Hebrews makes this explicit when he writes, quoting this portion of the Psalms, he writes, "'But of the Son,' he says, "'Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. "'The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. "'You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. "'Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you "'with the oil of gladness beyond your companions.'" Again, this poem clearly is about the Son. The son who here is called God. And not just a God, but the eternal God whose throne is forever and ever. This is not about Solomon or about any other king. No king can be called that. No king would fulfill this. No king reigns forever and ever. This is about Jesus. If you're a Christian, this is about your bridegroom. Can you pause and consider the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the bridegroom's love for his bride. He leaves the glories of heaven and the splendor of the heavenly courts to rescue his beloved. Though without sin, he comes in the likeness of sinful flesh, entering into this fallen world, experiencing the miseries of this life, suffering the pains of hell, that righteous and holy judgment of the Father, and dying the shameful death on the cross. And he does this to rescue his bride out of the pit of destruction and out of the miry bog of sin. Yes, this is the magnificent bridegroom. Notice also that he holds the scepter. It is a symbol of his sovereign rule and dominion over all things. His rule is characterized by uprightness even as he loves righteousness and hates wickedness. Sometimes we struggle to accept the idea that God might dare to judge sin, that he might dare to judge sinners. We fail to comprehend the righteous judgment of God because instead of truly loving holiness, we still love sin. And we can't fathom an upright ruler who truly loves righteousness and hates wickedness. It's beyond our comprehension. But this royal bridegroom really is a righteous king. He loves righteousness with the same intensity that he hates wickedness. This is why the the Son of God had to drink the cup of God's wrath on the cross. It couldn't be any other way. God would not overlook our sin. He can't. He's holy. He's just. This is also why, if you are in Christ, you can be sure, you can be certain that you will not be judged on the last day. Because Christ has already been judged in your place. And God, as perfectly just, will not seek satisfaction for that which his son has already atoned for with his blood. His judgments are always right. We need not doubt him. And scripture promises that he rules forever and ever, so we can enjoy assurance of salvation, knowing that even when we face adversity, our loving bridegroom is the eternal king who guards our eternal inheritance. Those are sweet words to us. He is our Savior. He is our anchor. He is our rock. Look again at verse 7. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. The bridegroom is God, and yet is anointed by God. This is another unequivocal Old Testament witness to the triune God of Scripture. Let no one tell you that the, the Trinity is a New Testament innovation. It's not, it's everywhere. And here we have it explicitly so. The bridegroom is God and yet is anointed by God. In verses 8 and 9 we read, Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and acacia. From ivory palaces string instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Not only is the bridegroom anointed with oil, but all his, all his robes are fragrant. He pleases all of our senses. With his majesty and splendor, he pleases our eyes. With his grace-filled words, he pleases our ears. With his fragrant aroma, he pleases our nose. We can remember this quality of the royal bridegroom when we feast at his table. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, of that sacrament that is the gospel to all of our senses. In its explanation, we hear of Christ's love. And then we see it and we touch it and we smell it and we taste it. Won't you agree that our bridegroom is altogether lovely? The queen standing at his right hand is a poetic reference to his mother, a fulfillment of the promise made in Genesis 3.15 where God promises that an offspring of woman will one day crush the serpent's head. This is the divine king But he is truly the offspring of woman. That promise was made. And he's the one, it's fulfilled. In the fullness of time, the divine Son by the Holy Spirit was incarnate in the womb of the Virgin Mary, becoming fully human that he might fully redeem us. Psalm 45 is a love song, not only because the psalmist extols the loveliness of the bridegroom, but because he also describes the love of the bridegroom for his bride. And it is to the bride that the poet now turns his attention in verses 10 to 15. Look at verses 10 and 11. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people in your father's house and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. When the psalmist first described the bridegroom, he extolled his manifold virtues. But now, as the bride comes into the scene, the psalmist begins with four imperatives for her to keep. Christ is the bridegroom, which means that we, the church, are the bride. And it is fitting that the beauty of Christ is magnified while at the same time we are called to obedience. Hear, consider, incline your ear. Here are the first three imperatives that are directed to the bride. They denote the priority that we are to give to Christ's living word. We are to lean in and to pay attention. Scripture demands it. It demands our undivided attention because its precepts contain the vows of our union. They contain the vows of our marriage to this bridegroom. The fourth imperative is forget. We are to forget our people and our father's house. It's not that we are to deny our culture and our heritage. It's that we are to value and prioritize Christ's love in its proper dimension. The wedding marks the formation of a new family, and our loyalty to it must be without rival. The royal bridegroom is completely committed to his bride, and so his bride must be totally committed to him. We used to be citizens of the City of Destruction, but now we are citizens of the city of God. We used to be in the household of Adam, but now we're in the household of Christ. We used to be children of wrath, but now we can call God Father. Forgetting our previous allegiances, we must commit ourselves to Christ alone. Proverbs 31.30 states that charm is deceitful and beauty is vain but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. This loyalty to the bridegroom will shape our godly character and adorn our lives with spiritual fruit. It will make us beautiful in God's eyes. The Apostle Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 3, verse 4, where he addresses wives, saying, But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. This is why verse 11 says that this will cause the bridegroom to further desire the beauty of his bride. Godliness is becoming of the Christian. Godliness is attractive, certainly to the world, but, but even to our bridegroom. And we ought to seek it. We ought to adorn ourselves with the fruit of the Spirit. The church must forsake all others and cleave only to Christ. We must not give ourselves to any other identity, to any other cause, to any other political party, to any other savior, any other counterfeit savior at that. It is our bridegroom. It is Jesus Christ alone that we must cleave to. We must examine our hearts to see if we are keeping this vow. In verse 12 we read, The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. Even though Christians around the world and increasingly Christians in this country are reviled and despised on account of their faith, the royal wedding guarantees the church's favored status. Jesus promises that the gates of hell will not prevail against his bride, against the church, so we can be certain that our bridegroom's promise guarantees our vindication, no matter what our present circumstances may be. That is good for us to remember. And then look at verses 13 to 15. All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes, she is led to the king, with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. The beauty and lavishly decorated robes of the bride make her a sight to behold. Yet we know that our right standing in the heavenly courts is not the result of our own merit. Rather, we know that our bridegroom covers us with his own righteousness, his own perfect righteousness. In other words, the beautiful bridal gown is a costly gift from our bridegroom. He has purchased it with his own blood. This is why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, that is to say that in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. The righteousness of Jesus is our glorious bridal gown. Notice also in verses 14 and 15, that the bride and her companions are led with joy and gladness to the palace of the king. The sovereignty of God in salvation is in view here. It is he who guides us, who directs us, who leads us, who brings us to himself. Jesus puts it this way in John six forty four: No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Such is the irresistible grace of the king that leads us by his spirit into his heavenly court. And as verse 15 says, we respond to this leading with joy and with gladness. Because you see, our bridegroom's love has turned our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. The chains of sin which kept our wills in bondage are forever torn asunder by the unstoppable love of our bridegroom. Now, having described this royal bridegroom and his bride, the psalmist concludes this love song by looking forward to the kingdom they will rule. Look at verses 16 and 17. In place of your fathers shall be your sons, you will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Through the royal wedding, the glory of Christ has become. The heritage of our covenant children. They shall be princes in all the earth. We can give them no greater inheritance. But we must not forget that the entire upbringing of a prince was designed to prepare him to be king one day. Let us not forsake the magnanimity of our bridegroom's gift by neglecting our children's instruction in his word. For the royal bridegroom has set his love on his bride and has given his name to her. A name that will be remembered in all generations. We are to forget our natural names because the name of the king is now ours by grace and it is, a game that will, it is a name that will not be forgotten. It will be an abiding testimony of God's enduring love. And all creation shall marvel and sing praises because of his amazing grace. And on that day, we shall join that chorus and realize that when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. What a love song. What a bridegroom. What a king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, that we would be your son's bride is altogether unfathomable. We who are sinners, we who are unfaithful, we who still, even after tasting of your grace, love sin. Father, we are not worthy of this amazing gift, and yet you give it to us. So Father, I pray that our hearts would be melted by that love and that more and more your Spirit would masterfully, expertly conform us to the image of Christ, to the image of the Bridegroom, that we might reflect all his beauty and all his splendor and all his grace and all his mercy and all his holiness. That we might be light and that we might be salt. And Father, we especially pray that our children, that our children would know that this is their heritage, that these boys and girls would know that they are beloved by the King, and that they would be instructed by their parents and by the church to grow to love this king and to to grow to, to bear the fruit of that spirit that will be life, not just to them, but to all those who are in their company. And Father, we pray for those that might be here who don't know that king. Oh, Lord, would your spirit today reveal this amazing, beautiful, handsome, powerful, merciful King to them. And may He be their Bridegroom, even as He is our Bridegroom. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.